Great, thank you. In Jeremiah chapter 2, if you turn there with me today, um, Jeremiah the prophet is given one of his first messages to Israel, and it's a message where Almighty God has a combination of feelings about Israel. First part of his feelings is very reminiscent and kind of maudlin and uh, remembering the good old days. And God tells the stories of the good old days and how they first came together and their their wedding and all the good stuff. And and then he goes on and, and, and says, but what happened? But what happened? And that's the question that we want to ask today. What happened? And uh, what can we do to avoid the same problems that Israel faced? Chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, How I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land that was not even sown. It was a wild land. Israel was holy to the Lord. You were the first fruits of his harvest. And anyone who dare eat of it were held guilty, and disaster came upon them. First part of Jeremiah's prophecy here, the Lord talks about how great it was when he established his covenant and his relationship with Israel. One of the things I enjoy doing, especially when I'm with a group of, of old-timers and their spouses, who, people who've been married a long time, is to say, tell me about how you met. Tell me about how your first phases of getting married and and I like to tell my stories, and I remember how when my wife and I met, uh, we had planned, we met while we were in Bible college, and we had planned to get married a year later, and when we went to her father, who was an evangelist, he surprised me, because I was asking for his daughter's hand in marriage, and I was thinking maybe, maybe a, a year is too short of an engagement period for him. And uh, when I asked him, he said, Next summer? Huh. I don't think that'll work. And for me, that was kind of intimidating. My father-in-law was, before a being evangelist, was a Golden Gloves boxer champ. And uh, he would often bring out his jump rope or his, his gloves and remind me, uh, you know, kind of like a shotgun, and uh, uh, remind me of his skills and his abilities and how his hands were registered as legal weapons. And uh, when I said, uh, what about us getting married next July? He said, no, I don't think that's going to work. And Francis and I looked at each other and said, uh-oh. And he said, I've got meetings, revival meetings, booked all summer long. There's no way I could get away from my meetings to be at your wedding. I said, oh. He said, do you think you could move it up till December? This was October. And I said, you mean like in two months? He said, well, it's almost a little less than that. I'm thinking early December because middle December I've got meetings again. And uh, suffice it to say, we quickly from early October put together our wedding plans for Friday the 13th of December, and it was our lucky night. And I could go on and tell you wonderful things about how my wife was in the hospital two weeks before, and we were 
wondering whether we were going to get married in the hospital uh, little chapel or we were going to meet at the chapel at the school and and it was tense about all that and we were worse than broke didn't have any money at all and how a friend of mine who worked at the uh, local funeral home uh, when he realized that we didn't have any flowers for our wedding said I'll take care of the flowers and sure enough there was a there was a beautiful funeral early on Friday the 13th that most of those flowers made their way to the chapel. I love those stories. I love all that happened. I love the fact that the doctor said, you can take your bride from the hospital, but she has to stay in a wheelchair. And she can walk down the aisle leaning on her dad and walk out leaning on you, but you have to promise that she'll stay in a wheelchair and that she has to be back by midnight Sunday night. And I can go on and on and on about the incredible stuff that happened and how wonderful those early days were and how that on Monday morning she had surgery. The doctors told us we would never, ever have children. It was a tough, hard pill to swallow four days after you get married. Um, I remember my mother-in-law saying, do you want to annul the wedding because you can't have kids and, and, and saying, what do you mean? I didn't, I didn't marry a baby machine. I married your daughter. And, uh, and I love Francis. And, and how that in spite of all that, God intervened and miraculously gave us a, a child, a son, who's now a youth pastor. And all those great stories. There's nothing like the stories of new love, foundational love, and the purposes and plans and hopes that you have in that time frame. And God speaks through Jeremiah to his people. He says, wow, I remember those days. And God does it with a sense of, of just lavishing and treasuring uh, the, the foundation of his love with Israel. And how that, from Deuteronomy's point of view, Israel was no nation. And God loved it into existence. And I have a friend who's Palestinian who opened a, a little deli near the church I pastored in Northville for 15 years. And, and when he opened the deli, I, I started going there for breakfast a couple days a week, and, and uh, we made really good friends. And I remember one day, his name is Isa, and he would pull me aside, and he said, Pastor, tell me this, tell me why. I said, what? He goes, why is Israel God's chosen people? Because he'd had some pretty harsh experiences in his family uh, who were from Palestine. And uh, his experience with the reestablishing of the nation of Israel were not pleasant memories. And losing all their property and being chased out of town and, and all the things that were part of that, a different flip of the story. And, and he thought, you know, what is it that's so special about Israel? And we went to the Bible and it said, God chose them because they were nobody. I said, uh, Isa, Jews aren't better than anybody else. God chose them because they were nobody. So that he could make something beautiful out of nothing. And that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. They were simply a model to speak to everybody else of what God's potential and plan was in her life. And was able to, to lead my, my friend Isa to the Lord. When God treasures the beginnings of Israel, 
He does it in this formation of a, of a wedding and of remembering how that it had changed the land from being a wild wilderness to being established, a defendable fortress, and how that if anybody came against Israel, God delighted in standing up and saying, you're going to have to come through me. And he loves telling those stories. To me, that says so much about how God thinks about us. He doesn't think of us as a stepchild that he had to put up with. He doesn't think of us as an obligation that says, oh, no, I wish I never made these people. He remembers the hope and the plan and the dreams that he has for our lives. Those are the things that God relishes. Those are the things that he likes to just roll over in his mind and heart. But things were very different here. At Jeremiah's time, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, had turned far away from the Lord. Horrible, terrible things had come into the nation of Israel. All kinds of false worship, all kinds of forgetting of where they came from. Verse 4 begins this phase where he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me? And get this, he says, They went after worthless things, and they became worthless themselves. They went after worthless things and became worthless. Occasionally I'll meet somebody who, who is trying to figure out their their net worth. And basically, from a financial point of view, you, you take all your debts and you take all your assets and you cancel those out. And whatever you have left after all your debt is paid and after all your assets have been liquidated, the cash that you have left is what's called your net worth. Now, for some of us, that would be a negative number. You know, we have more debt than we have assets in value. So there's different ways of measuring our worth. Uh, I did a little deal on Google to say, how much is a human worth? Just to see what it would come up with. And to my surprise, it came up with a scientific answer that said most human bodies weigh about 180 pounds. And then in that 180 pounds, it's mostly water. But if you break it down into the the value of the core ingredients of a human body, the average human being is worth about $8.75, depending on the precious metals up and down's value. So you can know this. You are worth at least $8.75, no matter what, although your debt may cancel that out as well. When he says that they went after worthless things and they became worthless There's a very powerful message to us that the things that we pursue begin to taint and change who we are. The things that we treasure and value and chase after, those are the things that are going to begin to set our value. The things that when you wake up in the morning and it's on your agenda right away, the things that you set in your goals and dreams, the things that you set up and say, one day I'm going to have this, or one day I'm going to be this. The things that we pursue according to God's economy are 
determiners of our value. And our value to him is very different than how much stuff we have. We know that most of the stuff we have is wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to burn away. What is the stuff that really counts? Israel had come to a place where by God's definition, they had chased hard after worthless things. And the consequence of that pursuing is that they themselves had become worthless. How did that happen? How does a people who tell the stories of their heritage and their origins after being called by God to speak to Abraham that says, I'm going to make you a great nation, nation that is more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the sea, that's going to be your heritage, Abraham. And they were part of that promise of God. What an incredible sense of identity. Uh, in my family, we have not quite the kind of heritage that causes us to talk about it. Um, I was introduced today as Otis Buchanan. In fact, my last name only has one A-N, so I pronounce it Buchan. Um, most of my family are come from South Georgia, North Florida, and down there, um, they pronounce it Buckin. And uh, when I went to school, my parents, they immigrated to Chicago before I was born. And um, when they came into Chicago, uh, they ended up grouping with a couple of other families from the South. And, and uh, when I went to school in Chicago, you know, they ask you questions about pronouncing your name and stuff like that. And, and kids are really ruthless with rhyming stuff. Let me tell you that bucken is not a good word for rhyming. And, uh, and I didn't like it very much at all. And so um, I heard about this president, Buchanan. And so I started pronouncing my name, Buchan, in the north. And so it caught on. So my brothers and sisters who grew up in Chicago and their children and their children's children all pronounce our name Buchan. But if we take a trip south of the Mason-Dixon, all of a sudden we're the Buckins. Uh, and so things do change. Uh, my one brother started doing some study in our, in our history and going back further and further. And after going back six or eight generations, we're still here and still Buckins and um, not really good stories. And uh, so, so we don't talk a lot about where we came from. Um, but Israel had the ability to talk about where they came from. They had the ability to talk about, we're a nation that was breathed by God. We're a nation that in spite of, of being led by God into Egypt for provision, and when a new pharaoh came up, subjugated my, my, my background into slavery, but God wouldn't let us be there. And he sent Moses to come and to set us free. And they had great stories of redemption, great stories of making it through the wilderness, great stories of, a, of an agreement, a covenant, a, a marriage between Almighty God and their people. Talk about a reason to be proud of your heritage and your background. Israel had it. But something happened. They began to seek after worthless things to the detriment and neglect 
of the incredible value of a heritage. They began to pursue temporary successes in a temporary vision and forgot about eternal values. Does that sound familiar at all? The world around us is as fickle as can be. Forgetting heritage, forgetting history, forgetting great accomplishments. It's all about what have you done for me lately. The nature of human nature is that we are prone to wander. The old hymn writer said it well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the very God I love. How does that come about? I don't know entirely. I just know that the nature of human nature is not to pursue God. God is the one who keeps pursuing us. We have to shake ourselves to hear his voice. We have to respond to that hound of heaven, the one song we sung earlier today, that he just keeps coming after us, keeps coming after us. The question is, are we returning in any way the heart of God? And if we don't, if we continue to pursue after worthless things, this prophecy says, then no matter how much net worth you may have, you become worthless. And I think when the Lord uses the term worthless, he's talking about worthless in terms of demonstrating the glory of God. You know, we have a capacity, an incredible capacity, to represent God. What an honor that is. What a privilege that is. What a powerful thing that is. I've had the, the pointed privilege of having people who, because I was in ministry and even before that I served the Lord in a very ministry kind of way, people who every so often come back in contact with me and they say, hey, oh, man, we haven't seen each other in 30 years, but you were the one that showed me that life could be different. You were the one that I discovered the hope that we have in Christ. My life, my children's lives, my grandchildren's lives are totally different than they would have been had not God used you. When I get messages like that, man, the hair on my arm stands up. I tear up in my eye and I say, wow, it's been worth it. And I'm energized to do it all over again. Much more than somebody who says, oh yeah, I remember you. You were the worst day of my life. I remember you. You're the one that made me quit that job. You know, I remember you. You're the one that caused me to throw in the towel and believe that everybody's a jerk. You're the one who stole my hope. You're the one who who broke my heart. Uh, Too often, our lives have more people who see us in those lenses than those who see the glory of God. How much better it is when we have the privilege of representing Almighty God. How much better it is when we have the opportunity, not through anything that we've done other than trust the Lord and what he's done in our life, to see that light of the Lord multiply in the impact of the lives of others around us, multiply in the impact of the culture around us, multiply in the impact of of salvation, to be stewards of that. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be back on Father's Day, and I have a really heart-thought-out 
and, and revealed message about how important it is that we steward memories for Father's Day. And I have some great issues. My dad was, was the kind of man who, um, when the Lord came to him, he was not good soil. You know, the story of the, of the seeds in the soil. My dad was not good soil when the gospel came to him. But incredible things happened, and we're going to talk about that and honor fathers in two weeks. But this is this whole issue that God has wanted to do from the very beginning of time. When God creates humanity, he gives us a special distinction from all of the other biological creatures. He does two things. He breathes into us life. He didn't breathe life in anything else. The very breath of God is a distinctive of being a human being. And the second thing, he describes his creative action that we were created in his image. Now, being in his image doesn't mean that God looks like us because some of us would look more like God than others. That's not the, the impact of creating his image. It's that we have the ability to perceive and to affect our surroundings much more like God than any other being on earth. We have this eternal spirit that God has breathed within us. We have a powerful responsibility, an awesome opportunity, simply because we're human beings. It is to that that we are all held accountable for. What did you do with what I gave you? To whom much is given, what does the word say? Much will be expected. Much will be required, right? How much has the Lord given us? Basically, he's given us life, which is worth more than we can ever imagine. Plus, on top of all of that, and ultimately, he has given us his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To redeem us. To set us free. To restore us. To recreate his image in our life. What an incredible opportunity and obligation we have. How did they drift away? How does a people who owe their entire origin story to incredible intervention of God ever lose that? How does somebody whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents tell them the stories of coming out of Egypt, the stories of Abraham coming out of Ur, the stories of water coming out of rocks, the stories of manna dropping out of the sky and quail flying in and feeding thousands of people in the desert and, and Almighty God bringing him into a promised land and Jericho falling down and over and over and over and over. Incredible stories of God's great provision. To be able to say to a kid, that's who you are. Man, if that doesn't make you strut your buttons, nothing will. Without being braggadocious, as it causes you to say, man, I come from good stock. God has an incredible plan for my life. I love being a grandparent. It's the reward for not killing your kids when they were young. And, uh, and, I, and I just enjoy being with my grandsons and granddaughter. And I've got four grandsons, one granddaughter, and all of them are full of life. All of them are always thinking. All of them, every time with them, it's just entertaining just to listen to them. 
But I love telling them stories. I love the look in their eye when I'm able to say to them, you are a miracle of God. God has a plan for your life. Remember after telling them that one time, we, we have a set of twins that are now seven years old, and one of them was acting up, and the other one said to him, that doesn't look much like a miracle. I thought you were a miracle. <laughs> and the other one said, well, I'm a miracle, but I'm still in process. What about you? You know, and, and I can sit there and just listen to them go on and on. But I love investing the vision of God into their lives because I know that at some point God is going to do something incredible with them. Our oldest son, Jason, as I told you, we were told we would never have children. And when he was born, he was born without a right hand. And I remember being catcher there in the, in the delivery room and, and the joy that we had that this miracle of God had happened. And, and then I remember hearing the nurse uh, behind me when she was cleaning the little baby up, Jason. She said, oh, no, oh, my God. And I thought, oh, my goodness. He's got one eye in the middle of his forehead. It'll be okay, you know. And I stepped over to see, because she had gasped pretty big. And here was this beautiful, blue-eyed, little bald boy that, that just was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there's, there's a birth defect. And his feet were sticking out of the blanket, and I saw beautiful ten-toed feet. And, and she unfolded and showed me his right appendage and it had no fingers except for one and I must have surprised her because I said oh is that all and she said well you know birth defects tend to come in threes we don't know yet I said wow I am so grateful what a beautiful baby the doctor took me aside and he thought I was going to need special counsel or whatever and I told him I said doc we were told we would never, ever have children. God miraculously intervened. This, this child is a child of destiny. God did a miracle for him to be born. I, I can't complain because he doesn't have, you know, two hands. I know that God somehow is going to use He goes, how do you know God is going to use him? And I said, today I was studying and preparing for a message. And I was studying the passage where the man who had been born blind was brought to Jesus. And they said, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but that God would be glorified. And I said, as soon as I saw that issue of his hand, I remembered what I studied today. It isn't about what we did or didn't do. God has a plan. He's going to be glorified. And throughout Jason's life, what has been, by other people's opinion, a handicap, has opened doors for ministry like nothing else. Recently, he's an associate pastor in Otisville, of all places. And uh, in Otisville, he happened to meet the superintendent of schools uh, through an incredible deal with students in ministry. And he noticed that my son didn't have a right hand, and he said, can we get together and talk? 
And they talked about his life growing up and what it was like to grow up in a school where kids can be kind of abusive and all the rest of that. He says, I've been looking for someone who can speak to our schools about bullying. Do you think you could do that? The entire school system in Genesee County has opened up to Jason. On a regular yearly event, he goes and does school assemblies and initiates it with this false story of how he lost his hand by a shark bite. You know? And like you, everybody is shocked. And then he says, not. I was born this way. But then tells everybody about how important it is that you're a gift from God. And that God has a plan for your life. And how that you dare not make fun of somebody else. What kind of tragedy you do when you're involved with derogatory speech or treatment of other people. And every door in the public school system in his county invites him to come back. That could never happen without the things that other people would see or an obstacle. So I love it when I, I realize that no matter what state or circumstance we are in, when we know that we have great worth, not because we are pursuing some human great dreams, those are okay, but become really of great value when we are pursuing the Lord. Look what it says here. <coughs> and it says they went after worthless things and became worthless themselves. Verse 6 says, They did not say, Where is the Lord? I believe the implication is because they stopped asking, Where is the Lord? They were asking the wrong questions. They were asking, where's the best jobs? They were asking, what's the coolest dress? They were asking, who has the best chariots? They were asking, where's the best land? They were asking, what kind of animals do I need to have? They were asking, what kind of prestige do I have? They were asking all of the common human questions about getting more human stuff. But God had birthed them with a different vision. That their most important value was to say, the Lord has led us, therefore, where is the Lord? The most simple question for guidance in your life is to ask, where is the Lord? Because if you with all your heart want to be where He is, and you want to be doing what He wants you to do, then everything else will take care of itself. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The kingdom of God. And who's the king of the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ. And so if we really do want to have great worth in this life, we seek where Jesus might be. When I was in um, high school, I had a, a youth leader that uh, had written a book, um, uh, an ancient old Christian uh, book that, um, that called into question by this old monk to simply um, always practice the presence of the Lord to the point where you pretend that you see the Lord with you. And so he challenged us. He said, I want you for the next 24 hours to physically pretend that Jesus is actually walking with you. And let's see if that changes your life. And I thought it was silly. 
but I said, okay. I had a girlfriend who was all excited about it, and so she said, let's do it, let's do it. I said, okay. So I got into my car, started up the engine, and she said, wait a minute, we got to let Jesus in. I went, what? You know, we're pretending Jesus is with us. She says, do it. I went, what? Open the door. Let him in. So I got out of my car. I opened the door. Come on in, Jesus. Shut the door. Got back in the car. And she says, now, what would we do if Jesus were really sitting here? And I went, oh. And I put my seatbelt on. I hated wearing my seatbelt. But I knew if Jesus were in the car, he'd be looking at me to put my seatbelt on. I don't know why I knew that, but he did. And so I put my seatbelt on. And for the next 24 hours, I had this awkward experience of what if Jesus really were physically present, how would it change what I did? remember going into my house. My mom was busy in the kitchen. I started to just walk past her to my room, and I thought, no, uh, Jesus is with me. So I went over and I kissed my mom on top of her head. I said, hi, Mom. And she turned around with this wooden spoon like she was defending herself. She said, who are you and what have you done with my son? You know? <laughs> Knowing the presence of the Lord <coughs> will change you. Because an awareness of his presence changes things. Most of us have been in those circumstances where you're all alone in the middle of the night somewhere and there's some strange noise and you start whistling, thinking that somehow whistling will scare off the bad guy. I don't know why. We, you, you know, you do that. You, you start talking. You start, you know, doing whatever you can because you feel all alone. But if you happen to know that someone is with you, somehow your whole fear level changes. One of the things I miss most and have begun to regain it with my grandkids miss most about when my kids were young is whenever there would be a big lightning storm, we had a king-size bed, and all of them would get out of their beds and come jump in bed with, with Francis and I. I loved it. I loved looking around that bed and seeing all my kids feeling peace just because they were in bed with me. They had no idea I had no power over lightning. They weren't any safer there than they were in their own beds. But I loved them knowing and believing that they were. And I would pray all the harder, Lord, help me keep them safe. The people of Israel had stopped realizing the value of knowing God's presence. They had begun taking it for granted at best, or at worst, beginning to wonder if God only showed up at big crisis times, he wasn't there at normal average times. And so consequently, as the people and nations around them had their own ways of dealing with their fears, they began to pick up their habits and, and worshiping false idols. In the very presence and temple of God, they would bring in false idols and worship these false idols. They would begin using phrases of, of other worlds and other countries and other cultures um, as phrases of good luck. They would begin to forget who they were, where they had come from, what God's plan was for their life. 
And in Jeremiah's prophecy, it's boiled down to a single question. You became worthless because you stopped asking, where is the Lord? And he clarifies it. We don't have time this morning, but he says, you know, the one who led us from Egypt, the one who led us through the wilderness, the one who led us through the deserts and pits, the land of drought and deep darkness, the land that no one lives and passes through. I brought you into this plentiful land. Not only did I deliver you, I blessed you into this land of promise. But when you came into my land, you defiled it. You made my heritage an abomination. Those words are haunting words. When I think of young people who've grown up in the house of God and who choose to run off on their own ways and who choose to totally disregard the incredible heritage that their family was blessed with, these are the words they hear. You made my heritage an abomination. Occasionally, sometimes I'll see on television people who the world is developing into some kind of idol and you'll see them wearing a cross and nothing but profanity coming out of their mouth, advocating horrible types of life and still bearing the cross. And I say, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea of what holiness to God means and what it can accomplish. And I weep for them and I say, dear Lord, Our nation is becoming increasingly like Israel of Jeremiah's time. We stopped asking the question on a regular basis, where is the Lord? You see, asking that question is like a simple orientating question. If you're stuck somewhere in the woods and you're lost, the first question you want to ask is, where did the sun come up? Right? Because if we know the sun came up, is it over there? In this orientation? Over here? I'm turned around in your building. The sun comes up over here? So what do we know if we know the sun comes up over there? We know that that's east. So we have one answer to one question, right? But in reality, we have more than one answer, don't we? Because if we've established, well, where east is, we know what? We know where west is. We know where north is. We know where south is. We know where southwest is. We know where north-northwest is. We have a hundred answers out of one question that we have clear. Where is the Lord? When you know where is the Lord, answers flow. Answers to all kinds of possible questions continue to come out of that. Especially if you're saying, I want to be near the Lord. I want to be doing what he is doing. Jesus made it so clear that when he tells the story about the sheep and the shepherd, he said, if you are really his sheep, you will know his voice. And what he means by that is you will want to be where you heard that voice. You want to follow where you hear that voice going, if you're his sheep. On one occasion in the temple, there were people who said to Jesus, I think it's in John chapter 10. They said, tell us for sure, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus answers back and he says, I have told you that a hundred times already. But the reason why you're still asking is because my sheep know my voice. (coughs) What he implies to them is, 
if you were really looking for the Messiah, you would have known already. You're looking for something else. And because you're looking for something else, you don't have the answer you want. And you won't have it until you're really looking for him. We wrap up this morning. It was not just in general, but (coughs) it says that this happened again and again. A little bit verse further down, you can see that he says, um, verse 8, even the priests did not say, where is the Lord? The implication is that the very people who were supposed to be spiritual leaders had stopped asking the question, where is the Lord? Years ago, I went to pastor a church that had had some troubles and struggles in it, and and um, when I went in town to do some business and to pay for something with a church check, I got a shock of my life um, because the elder of that church had, had to sign the checks, and so I brought a check with his name on it. And the um, lumber store in town said, as long as that name is on the check, we won't take the check. And he was known as the elder of this church. And the more I found out, the more I realized that every business in town wanted nothing to do with this person because his reputation was not an honest one. His reputation was not one that he paid his bills on time. His reputation was that he cheated and uh, built substandard structures and all kinds of things, and I didn't know that. But I found out real quickly that in, in this town that we were in, that I had to get permission to sign the church checks myself or nobody would take it. Even the priest did not say, where is the Lord? You see, it's, it's easy for us to, to bifurcate and to separate into two. This is my God stuff and this is my world stuff. And as soon as we do that, we've stopped asking the question, where is the Lord? Because the Lord is the Lord of all, Right? He's the Lord of everything we do and everything we say and everywhere we are. And if we know his presence and we are seeking his awareness of where his presence is and we want to be there, then it doesn't matter if it's a business deal or dealing with a a child-rearing issue or or it's dealing with paying our taxes. Whatever it might be, we're going to find answers to the world's normal dilemmas with the heart of God. And as we do that, we're going to represent him. And our greatest mission in life, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, is to represent him well. So that we can hear at the end of our life those words. Well done, good and faithful one. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The question that we have to ask is, is the joy of the Lord enough? Let me ask that again. Is the joy of the Lord enough? Because if it isn't, we're simply idolaters. We haven't taken seriously this call of God and the identity of God. But if we take it seriously, there becomes a fire in our bones that Jeremiah talked about. What else could I do, Lord? You're the fire in my bones. Where else could I go? Jesus asked the question to Peter, Are you going to leave me too? And the answer was, Where do we go? Only you 
have the words of eternal life. Even though Peter wasn't perfect and complete, he wasn't stupid. He knew that of anything else, he better be near where the Lord was. Because if there's going to be things that are good, if things are going to be worth it, it's going to be with the Lord. This question is a question not just for Israel during Jeremiah's time or Peter during Jesus' time, but it's for us today. And the key to knowing that we have great value is, first of all, knowing that God places value on us regardless. How do we determine what something's worth? This morning I had breakfast in uh, downtown, was it East Jordan there? Um, at this little cafe. Um, forget the name of the place. South, South Arm Cafe. And so there was a table across from me. And these guys were talking about this this deal and, and whether or not they, they would pay the price for it. And the guy says, well, how much do you want for it? And he says, well, it's only worth what you're willing to pay. And they're going round and round and round. And they knew one thing, that what made the value of something have value is whether or not the, the one who purchased it wanted to pay for the price. My sons used to collect these sport cards. They were always trying to wheel and deal and sell them. And I'd say, James, how much is that worth? And he'd look it up in his book. He'd say, well, according to the book, it's worth this. And I said, well, how much can you get for it? He says, I don't know. I don't have anybody who wants to buy it. I said, so what is it worth? And he says, right now I'm hoping and waiting until somebody makes it worth something. We don't have to hope and wait anymore, do we? Jesus stretched out his arms and said, this is how much you're worth. Laid down his life while we were yet sinners. The question is, after we know how God values us, will we appreciate that value? Will we let that value sink into identity? Will we let that value sink into our heart? Will we let that value cause us to say, I want to be where he is? And I want to keep asking the question, the simple question, where's the Lord in this situation? I want to be where he is, and I want to do what would make him smile. If that's your goal in life, you'll do well, my friend. You'll do incredibly well. God will open doors that no man can shut. He will lead you through difficult, hard things that no one thought anyone could live through. But because the Lord is with you, it becomes worth it all. Bow your heads with me. If our musicians could come and sing that, Great Are You, Lord. We have the potential of greatness because we serve a great God. A great God. But we have to begin with uh, a simple evaluation. And it's not one of how much do I owe and how much value in my assets and, and do I have a net worth. But, but it's a question of saying, Do I really want to be where he is? Do I want to know his presence in all that I do? There are times in great crisis 
that we suddenly want the Lord to be there. And that's pretty normal. But when things are going well and we're feeling really good, is it just as important then for us to say, Lord, where are you in the midst of this? Am I stewarding this blessing in a way that causes you to smile? Because, Lord, more than feeling good or not being sick, I want to know that I bring a smile to your face. That's what being a disciple of Christ is really all about. It's not making some deal saying being a Christian has greater worth than not being a Christian. It's Jesus has loved me. He's demonstrated his love while I was yet a sinner. What have I done with that love? Have I repented? Have I turned away from saying, I don't want to pursue false gods. I don't want to live life apart from God. Lord, I want to receive and walk in your love. If that happens, then the adventure continues. The adventure of joy, of blessing, of strength, of honor, of even tough times that reflect the very presence of God. While your heads are bowed, I want to ask some simple questions. I I know very few of you enough to, to make any kind of assumption. But I know that right now the Lord is saying to each and every one of us, do you want to be of great value and great worth? Then seek me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And all that stuff will be added to you. Do you want direction? Find out where I am and follow me and all of the direction you'll need will flow. Are you afraid and lonely? Then draw near to me. I'm there all the time. If not, you may find yourself like Israel, who in the latter part of that chapter he describes, they did two evils. The first one is they went far away from the Lord. And second evil was they began to drink out of cisterns instead of a fountain of living water. The very nature of human being is that you will be pursuing something. The question is, are you pursuing a fountain of living water or are you pursuing a broken cistern with stinky water that may quench a temporary thirst, but with it brings rottenness and substandard waters and leads you far away from what the Lord had built and promised for you. While your heads are bowed, no one's looking around, a question is first foundational. Is there anyone here who says, Pastor Earl, I want to admit that I have not been seeking after God. I've been really far away from him. And maybe it's the first direction that you want to say, I want to receive the Lord's love. And I want to commit myself to being a seeker after God with all my heart. And I want to do that as a first step in, in love of God and thanking him for his grace. If that's you, would you slip up a hand? For the first time in my life, I want to seek the true and living God. It's not been true of my life in the past, but I want it to be. Yes, God bless you. God bless you. Second question. Maybe... Uh, 
Maybe you're like a ship at sea that at one point you had things set pretty clear on where you were heading. And somehow the sea itself and distractions of life cause you to stop looking at the, at the right star. And you realize you're really off course. And this morning the Lord's saying, look for me. I will bring you back. I will bring you back on course. If that's you, would you slip up a hand and say, I really want to reorient my life. I really want his, his call to be first and foremost. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Last question. How many of you know someone who at one time was really connected to the heritage and the kingdom of God, and for whatever reason, they're way off course? Do you know somebody like that? Lift your hand. We want to pray for them. We want to pray that the spirit of the living God will be faithful to pursue after them and maybe use you as one of those signals to call them back on course, to bring that healing, to have that testimony. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you do not change, that you're faithful, and that, Lord, your love for us is inextinguishable, and it continues to be poured out and to draw us like a powerful gravity to your heart. Lord, we are, like this hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, prone to seek after other stuff higher than we're seeking after you. Help us, Lord, to have that conviction, that quickening of heart. Stir within us a a greater love for you and for your kingdom that, Lord, we really can be in this world your representatives. We can be in this world people who steward your glory and that you are seen in and through our lives. We thank you, Lord, for that. We pray for those people, Lord, that we care for And we can't imagine how much even more you care for them. Cause them, Lord, somehow to have their eyes opened. Cause them to have their thirst stirred once again. Cause them to have, Lord, their heart awareness of the emptiness that they're pursuing. The valuelessness of the life that they're uh, living. And that, Lord, somehow rediscover you. Rediscover your hope in your life. We pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. God bless you richly, and uh, I know Brother uh, Kurt Dalavo will be here next week. Great man of God, and in two weeks I'll be back. We'll see you then.